If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. This is your typical radio ad while eating a Crunch Bar. This is Automatic of Auto's Used Cars. This weekend only, we're having a whale. Bring the kids. See for yourself. It is huge. Gonna make a big splash. No other dealer can say they have a whale like this. When things sound dull, turn up the fun with Crunch. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Rob Attar, the magazine's editor. In today's episode, you'll hear from the historian and author Adrian Tinniswood, whose recent book, Behind the Throne, explores the domestic world that supported British monarchs over the centuries. He spoke to our section editor, Ellie Cawthorn. So, Adrian, what made you want to delve into the private lives of Britain's monarchs? That's a tough one. That's a tough one. I... I wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Long Weekend, which was about life in the country house between the wars. And I wrote a chapter in that about the royal family's country houses, about how George V and George VI lived at Sandringham and how the the royal offspring lived at Barnwell and, and Fort Belvedere. And when I was doing that, I started to wonder exactly how how those houses functioned and how they were different, how the social structures were different from the traditional sort of you know aristocracy. And the more I thought about it, the more intrigued I got. I mean, I, I years ago, I used to work with the Heritage Lottery Fund. And because of that, 
I met most of the royals. Well, met. I mean, I was presented. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I nodded. Let's say <laughs> there was there was one very bitter occasion when I I, I remember being presented to Princess Anne, and uh, um, it was the opening of a big record office, and. She said to me, I was because with the Heritage Lottery Fund, we'd funded it. So she said to me, so you, you've paid for all this, have you? And I said, well, not me personally, Mom. Big mistake. She just went, hmm, and moved on down the line. That was it. That was my first <laughs> lesson in not talking back. Uh, but I, I, I just got intrigued by the way. You know, there's always an equerry. There's always a lady, you know, a lady in waiting, and she's waiting to pick up that posy of flowers or the sort of soft toy from the kid. And the equerry's there whispering in somebody's ear that it's time, you know, we've got to keep the schedule, got to move on. And I just wonder how they got there and what their tradition, what their pedigree was, you know, how how the royal family worked, if you like. Not in any political way. And, and my, my new book isn't political. It's not about um, affairs of state. It is about how the royal family, how the social structures that surround the royal family over the last 500 years, how they've changed and and, and what they are, really. You mentioned equerries and ladies' maids, Mm. but can you give us an idea of swathes of different people who who have worked in the royal household over over time? It's it's enormous. You know, the, the, I mean, even today, um, and I only touch in the book on on the uh, contemporary practice, but even today, Queen Elizabeth II employs 1,200 in her household, 1,200 people. Um, uh, Charles II employed about 1,500. Medieval kings and certainly the Tudors employed something up to 2,000. And you've got, you've got everything from, from really important figures of state. I mean, the three great offices are the Lord Chamberlain, who looked after above stairs, basically, in the royal palaces. The Lord Steward, who looked after below stairs, who looked after the kitchens and the accounts and all that kind of thing. And then the Master of the Horse, who looked after the horses. And, of course, there were an awful lot of horses. I, I think Elizabeth I has like 250 horses in the stables. So actually feed, feeding those is, was quite important. So you've got those three departments. But within those... You've got grooms and pages and ushers. You've got scullery boys. And one of the themes that emerged when I was doing the research, it, a constant theme almost, is that nobody knew who was there. Nobody knew. You know, that, that, that you've, you've always got monarchs. Charles II was really hacked off because there were strangers wandering around the palace all the time. You know, we think of it as, we think of a royal palace like a, a, a sort of glorified downtown, you know, like a well-run, well-oiled machine. In fact, it was chaos. You know, there were people coming and going all the time. There was something like, in Charles II's Palace in Whitehall, there were 18 kitchens. And Charles II didn't know who they were feeding. All he knew was, was that he was paying for them. And that's another theme that comes out, another theme that's constantly coming out. It costs too much. You detail a lot of the rituals and the regulations and the formal ceremonies of royal life. Um, can you tell us about some of the most bizarre or a strange that you came across? I suppose that they, they what we would consider bizarre are the, the late medieval and Tudor ones where, you know, where the sovereign is basically God's representative on earth. And so, for example, I mean, the Tudor kings, their beds will be made 
every evening. You know, you, we see a four poster bed in one of the royal palaces now and think, oh, you know, that, that's just how it was like. It wasn't. I mean, the beds were stripped every day. They were made up every night. And as they were made up, they were made up with an enormous amount of ritual, you know, where, where an usher's hands touched the royal sheet, they would then kiss their hands and genuflect because this was a sacred thing. So that sort of ritual, and, and there's a reason for the ritual, I think, which is another of the themes that came through in the book, was, was that the ritual is there to separate us from them. You know, a king or a queen is not just like us. They are special. And if they were just like us, then what would be the point? Even today it's true. You know, you, you can aspire to be a prime minister. You can't aspire to be a king or a queen. You know, they're different. And there is a mystical quality still, I think. I mean, it comes out in the coronation service where, where the sovereign is anointed, you know, and, and it's a mystical union of, 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 of a human being with God. It, it's, you know, it's a very strange thing, a very strange thing, a very, very puzzling thing in lots of ways. I think the later chapters um, of the book are really interesting in terms of that balance between what we want from our monarchs, whether we want them to be a public figure or whether we want to also know about their private lives. You highlight how that's it's a very difficult balance to, to keep going. Yeah, it, it, it's very hard, I think. I mean, you see it, obviously, I mean, monarchs come in for criticism and how, I mean, in the, in the Middle Ages, they didn't tend to come in with criticism because if you criticise the monarch, you got your head chopped off. That's a simple simplification, but you know, but certainly, I mean, George the Fourth was constantly criticised for his bad behaviour, and interestingly, Victoria was constantly criticised for her spending. Uh, the 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 criticism usually is not directly of the monarch; it's of his or her advisors. It's just, you know they're, they're being bad. Rather like sort of Charles the First was never at fault; it was always his advisors. Parliament said. Uh, but um, by the mid-19th century, I mean, Victoria's household was coming in for a lot of criticism for its spending. People were saying, you know, why did Queen Victoria pay £1,200 a year to an hereditary grand falconer when she didn't have any falcons? Why was she paying hundreds of pounds a year to the master of the tennis court when there wasn't one and she didn't play tennis? So uh, that kind of criticism grows, I think, and, and, and the, the monarch has to be more and more conscious of it and steer a path through it but again it's not the monarch that's steering the path usually it is it's already come up twice or three times in this interview and it comes up again and again and again in the book this idea that the monarchs just simply couldn't stay on budget why was that is it because it was badly managed it, it is, i mean a lot of it is about about bad management or about an inability to manage a vast and vague and sort of amorphous household as I said, if you've got a couple of thousand people, I mean, the Palace of Whitehall, which until 1698 is, you know, from, from Tudor times through, is the primary royal residence. It, it wasn't patrolled. People wandered in and out. I mean, there, there were kind of brothels in corners. There were beggars. There were shops. You know, there were barber shops and milliners and things just set up, stationers all over the place. And people came and went. In theory, you've got a strict, most monarchs had strict um, household regulations about who was entitled to eat in the palace, about who was entitled to candles, who was entitled to kind of, you know, clothing allowances. And that was all set down. And the porters had lists of who was allowed in and who wasn't. And it just didn't work. A senior courtier would have servants. His servants would have servants. 
they would have mates, you know, come round, come round for tea kind of thing. And there was never any real control. You've constantly got monarchs and their advisors and their, their, their lord stewards, usually, who, who are the people who are, are sort of doing the books. You've got monarchs saying, you know, I've got a household of 1,500, I'm feeding 3,000 people. How is that? And nobody could say. And then there's stuff like, um, I mean, Lord Burley was always going on, um, Elizabeth, Elizabeth's um, uh, treasurer, Elizabeth I, was always going on about the fact that people nicked the pewter. You know, they, they, they had a right to eat in the palace, but they didn't tend to eat in the palace. They would go and get their, their dinner and take it away with them, and they wouldn't bring the plates back. And it would cost in a fortune. It was cost an absolute fortune. Um, they would drift off sometimes. They wouldn't do, they wouldn't, um, do uh, their duty. They were supposed to be in the early part. They're, they're supposed to be there all the time. There's no, you, you, as a courtier, you don't have any time off unless the monarch lets you go. And, and certainly that was true for the body servants. But they, they just did. So that, that chaos, that barely controlled chaos, is a theme right through, certainly into the 19th century, I think. Of course, at the centre of the story are the monarchs themselves. How much did the character of um, each monarch kind of determine the character of the household? I think that that's a really interesting question. It does vary a lot, you know. Um, one thing that determines the uh, the character of the household is gender. You know, Elizabeth I uh, as, you know, has her women of the bedchamber and her maids of honour become much more important and they become gatekeepers. Queen, A very good example of this, is, of course, is Queen Anne and Sarah Churchill, the Duchess of Marlborough, who is uh, mistress of the robes and keeper of the privy purse to Queen Anne and who controls her. She's a gatekeeper. She controls who gets access to the queen. And so often with courtiers, that's where their power lies. And Charles II's court is, um, uh, in Charles II's court, you, you've got this succession of mistresses. Gosh, did Charles II have mistresses? They actually have a, a political role in that they control access to the sovereign. And if they don't control access to the sovereign, they can certainly put a word in his ear, you know, uh, 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 during the pillow, pillow talk sort of thing, you know. So somebody having access to one of Charles II's mistresses has indirect access to, to Charles II. So in, in a household that's, that's, um, uh, fairly heavy on mistresses, as Charles II's was, then the women have a, you know, have much more power, I think, much more control. One of the interesting um, sections about access to the monarchs, I found, was about George III, because, of course, we, we think of monarchs as all-powerful, but George actually ended up having a lot of his power stripped away by his household. Could you tell us a bit about that story? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's 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 a terribly sad one. He's manic depressive and then and then he clearly has some kind of psychosis. And and medical historians are still, you know, always arguing about, you know, was it porphyria? Was it was it bipolar? What was it schizophrenia? Whatever. What whatever it was, he wasn't very well. I mean, you know, he had he was delusional. He had um, a, a disinhibited behaviour. I mean, appallingly, everybody was embarrassed about the way George III would behave. And you, you, you get this real constitutional problem. George III is head of state. You know, he is the king, and yet he's not in control of his own actions. So, yes, gradually, I mean, the, the, the classic example of control being taken away from him is when, you know, the, the, the Georgian equivalent of a psychiatrist, uh, the mad doctor Francis Willis is brought in and given more or less free range to treat the king. And he puts him in a straitjacket. He threatens him with a straitjacket. He, 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 he will come along when the king 
um, kicks up, he will da- he will literally dangle the straitjacket in front of the king, and then you've got issues about about well the classic was the king uh, in order for um, a regent to act in place of the king, the king has to sign the regency bill. But if the king isn't capable, uh, if he isn't legally responsible, how can he sign an act allowing somebody else to take over? And it was a tremendous constitutional problem in the, in the late uh, 18th century. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Re- researching the book and writing the book has left me with an enormous amount of respect for how hard it is to be a sovereign. Even with all the privilege and all the wealth, it's a blooming difficult job. That's what it's, that's what it's left me realising. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. One of your chapters on the Georgians is somewhat ironically titled Happy Families. <laughs> oh, Lord, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> why, can you tell us a bit about the intergenerational disputes they had? Because it seemed like um, no generation could get on with the with the. No, George the, or former. George II um, hated his dad, George I, um, uh, blamed him for uh, his mother's um, incarceration. His mother left George I and was uh, tried to elope and was uh, basically imprisoned for the rest of her life. George I wouldn't hear her, her name spoken. A lot of it was to do with, with money, you know, it always is. In 1697, Parliament realised that the Crown was not liable for the costs of government. Until then, notionally, the Crown 
pay, the crown was the state, and therefore the crown paid for everything. In 1697, the costs of government were, were hived off, and that's the beginning of the civil list. That's when Parliament agrees an allowance for the king. Then it was something like £700,000, I mean, a huge amount. And Parliament also allowed £100,000 a year for the Prince of Wales uh, in, um, uh, in the early 18th century, George I's Prince of Wales, so who became George II. When George II came to the throne, he refused to allow his own son that £100,000. He kept it for himself and gave him a lot less than that. And this was a, a, a source of, of a, a sore point with Frederick, as he was, Frederick, Prince of Wales. There's also this kind of vying for popularity. And, you know, if, if the king supports one political party, the Prince of Wales supports the other. You know, they're, they're, they're competing almost. It's that classic, almost Greek tragedy, you know, the, the, the son trying to overthrow the father. And it got really nasty. Um, you know, George I threw his own son out of the palace. George II threw his own son, Frederick, out of the palace. They set up rival establishments. Do you think that George IV, mm. um, especially when he was Prince Regent, does he win the crown? Bit of a terrible pun there, sorry about that. <laughs> for the most extravagant um, monarch. Yeah, he's... he's. I mean, re I mean, two minds about George IV, because part of... I mean, he has the most amazing taste. He is... And frankly, a lot of our monarchs don't have great taste, didn't have great taste, but George IV really did. That's the only redeeming feature. He was a, a really bad person, um, extravagant, uh, um, uh, vulgar in, in, in lots of ways, um, uh, tremendously unkind, I mean, famously unkind, uh, his queen. It didn't start well when... when um, he was so drunk on their wedding night that he lay unconscious on the floor until he woke up the next morning, hopped into bed with her. Um, their only daughter was born nine months later, and it, as far as I know, that's the last time they ever slept together. He, when he was told he had to marry her, he said, um, uh, if I must, I must. One damn frow's as good as another. I mean, this was not a nice man. But this is the guy who, um, for whom Buckingham Palace was built. You know, his father had bought Buckingham House George IV, who had a house at Carlton, um, Carlton House Terrace, was basically a bit fed up because people were peering in the window all the time. So as regent, he um, he had what he called a little a little cottage by the sea. Uh, John Nash built him a cottage by the sea. That was Brighton Pavilion. If you've ever seen Brighton Pavilion, anything less like a little cottage by the sea, you could not imagine. Uh, he also um, uh, commissioned... Uh, Geoffrey Wyattville to modernise Windsor Castle. Most of the medieval bits you see at Windsor Castle were actually put in the 19th century by Geoffrey Wyattville. Fantastic work. And he um, commissioned John Nash to modernise and extend Buckingham House. He said he didn't want a palace, he wanted a little pied-à-terre. And again, you know, as pied-à-terres go, the thing is, if you're going to have a palace, you have a palace. And that's, you know, the, the, the John Nash's Buckingham Palace was amazing. It went massively over budget. Uh, Nash enabled that by the simple expedient. He used to send a, a note to the Treasury saying, I'm, you know, I'm going over budget by so much. If I don't hear back from you by next week, I assume it's all right. And of course, the way the civil service worked, you know, <laughs> they never did. <laughs> so, uh, and it was, you know, it was incredible. You had um, the Marble Arch, of course, 
was the triumphal entrance to Buckingham Palace. That was that was the gatehouse. You know, it was a, a massive, wide open space. I, I've got a lot of time for Buckingham Palace for the the, the, the existing one, but it's a closed in space. It looks away from its public, you know, it hides from its public because first uh, Edward Bloor and then um, uh, Aston Webb uh, built that. Uh, initially, it was it was round three sides of a courtyard and the fourth side was open to the mall. Um, in the 19th and early 20th century, that, that fourth side was closed off. So as I say, it doesn't it doesn't proclaim itself to the public in the way that George IV's Buckingham Palace would have done. It was never quite finished for George IV. George IV died in 1830, uh, and William IV hated it. Um, he tried to give it away. When Parliament burned down in 1834, he had the Speaker. He went to see the, the smouldering ruins and walked round with the Speaker of the, the House of Commons and, and offered him Buckingham Palace as a House of Parliament. And, and he said, I mean, this is a permanent gift, mind you, a permanent gift. He's desperate to get rid of it. But Victoria liked it, so that's, that's, that's why it stayed. Do you think that closing off of Buckingham Palace is symbolic of a change in the royal household, in that yeah, they I were think. becoming more private and more closed? I do. I think... Um, I mean, Victoria famously is good and bad. is is a bourgeois queen in that she, you know, she espouses middle class values and middle class respect. You know, that Victorian notion of respectability is so important to Victoria and to Albert. Uh, and um, there is a, a kind of retreat almost. There's part of it, of course, is because there's a compact between between Parliament and Crown, if you like. The, the George the Fourth was the last to try and be a king, and Parliament just sort of, you know, they they just gave him a good slap and said, "We won't pay if you do that. You know, we won't pay for you to behave in that way." That was changing because what you do see uh, 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 over the last hundred and fifty years, a lot of the traditional courtier roles have been politicised, so they are political appointments, and what that means. At the end of the 19th century, when, when the Disraeli-Gladstone ministries were swapping every two minutes, you'd have somebody coming into post and then going out again. I mean, the, the, the conservative Duchess of Buccleuch was mistress of the robes three times. You know, she'd barely sort of sat down and she was off again. In fact, the Liberals didn't get a chance to, to appoint mistresses of the robes because you know, their ministries you know, moved, fell so quickly. If senior roles like that become political, there's no continuity. And what that meant was that other roles become more prominent. I mean, the, the real difference, I think, in the last century is the importance of the private secretary. The private secretary is the kind of court, the top dog, very definitely. He, and it is always a he, there's, not, but there's never been a female um, private secretary. But from, and I mean, until George III's time, until 1805, I think, monarchs wrote all their own letters. You don't think that, you know, that George, George III wrote all his own letters. Um, it was only when he became blind, his eyesight started to fail, that he appointed a private secretary to, to, to write his letters for him. And there was uproar. You know, the idea that somebody who wasn't a member of the Privy Council, wasn't a member of the Cabinet, should be able to see, um, you know, the, the, the red box or whatever the equivalent was. People said it was wrong. But he, he stuck to his guns. Victoria had a private secretary. I mean, later on, Henry Ponsonby in her aim was an important figure. But the private secretary becomes more and more important because that's, that's a, a monarch's appointment. And 
they can control it. You know, it's not the, the prime minister saying who your secretary is going to be. And they're hugely important, I think, uh, you know, for those of us who, who devotees of the crown. Um, you know, I, I mean, Tommy Lascelles, Rowan Lascelles, who, who figures so prominently in the first season of, of, of the crown. You know, he he was he's one of the, the, the most important figures in the 20th century royal history, I think. He, he's he's also great fun. I mean, this is the guy who he comes across in the crown as being you know, really sort of snooty and, and, and stuff. He knew his own mind. I'll, tell you, I'll give you that. At, at um, George VI's coronation in uh, 1937, when they're all queuing to get out of Westminster Abbey, and it was raining, so the cars were kind of put... And everybody's getting really fed up. And um, uh, Tommy Lascelles is there in his ceremonial dress with his wife, and he gets so fed up that he whips out his ceremonial sword, carves a doorway through the marquee they're queuing in, and just walks out the side. <laughs> He's the one who said he, um, he he hated royal garden parties because he said they they always reminded him of the day of judgment because he saw so many people he thought were dead. But he is also he's in charge. I mean, he's in charge of George the Sixth very definitely, uh, and indeed he was. I mean, of he was private secretary to. Um, Edward VIII, when Edward VIII was Prince of Wales. And he uh, he didn't hesitate to give the Prince of Wales a real dressing down whenever. I mean, he really didn't like the Prince of Wales. He gave him a, a huge telling off after one of his many indiscretions. And the poor old Edward, David, everyone called him David, said, Tommy, you're probably right. I, I suppose I'm just not the right kind of person to be a Prince of Wales, am I? Which is sad but true, you know? Tommy's remembered later when he'd... Uh, the Prince of Wales, uh, the King, went uh, as he was. Edward VIII went to his mother, went to Queen Mary at Marlborough House to tell tell her about Wallace Simpson. And the Queen said, uh, "Edward, um, well, what have you thought about the impact this is going to have on the nation and the empire?" And he said, "Don't you understand that nothing is as important as my her happiness and mine?" And Tom and the Cells could never forgive that. If you could go back and be part of a royal household, oh, when do you gosh. think would be the most <laughs> fascinating time? Oh. And when would be the worst? Who who had kind of... Oh, they've all, the thing is, they've all got something. I mean, I'd, you know, if I was single again, I'd love to be part of Charles II's <laughs> household, I think, because, gosh, that guy knew how to party, as indeed did George IV, you know? Um but but to be part of Elizabeth I's household, I think, they've got it. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the way that Elizabeth I you know, went on progress. And when she went on progress, she took her entire court with her. And to, you know, that, that sort of degree of organisation for a large part of her reign of spending a summer, you know, showing herself to her subjects, if you like, you know, be, being seen... And um, uh, you know, reminding people that there was uh, there was a monarch, and you've, I mean, you think about the organisation. You've got something like two hundred carts for a start. You know, you've got people, you've got harbingers going ahead to sort of make sure everything's all right. You've you've got a court of maybe twelve hundred people descending on somebody's house for the night, and they couldn't all be be comedy. You know, it couldn't all be. Well, I mean, it's funny. So Henry Lee when. Um, he was told the Queen was coming to visit. So he just said, no, she's not. I can't afford it. <laughs> I can't afford it. And the, the, the classic was the Earl of Lincoln, I think, who um, the Queen uh, had the house in Chelsea, I think, and she was on her way to see him. 
and he just pretended he was there. There's this notion that, that, that a, a visit from the Queen could double your income overnight with perks. You know, there's a famous quote, which I think, is it Lord Burley says to Christopher Hatton, they've both built big houses. And Burley writes to, to Hatton, um, God give us both long life to enjoy her for whom we have exceeded our purses in these. In other words, they were investing because they wanted the Queen to, because you could get, you could get a monopoly, you could get a, you know, a, a court appointment that could double your income, but it could cost you an absolute fortune and there was no guarantee you were going to, you were going to um, get anything out of it. Must have been quite exciting because the court was, it was also the government. Um, having written the book, how has it left you feeling about um, the monarchy in terms of what it might have been like to be part of the royal household, and also, and um, kind of led to any surprises. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm left with a kind of slightly bewildered respect for them. I'm re researching the book and writing the book has left me with an enormous amount of respect for how hard it is to be a sovereign. How hard, even with all the privilege and you know, and all the support networks you've got, and all the wealth. It's a blooming difficult job. That's what it's, that's what it's left me realising. That was Adrian Tinniswood. Behind the Throne, A Domestic History of the Royal Household, is out now, published by Jonathan Cape. And don't forget to check out historyextra.com for a wealth of royal history. Thanks for listening. We'll return on Thursday when Tessa Dunlop will be discussing Bletchley Park. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.